Yeah, that's right. How many verses? Yeah. So, decelerator, um, God in three persons. hope that everybody will uh, feel free to continue those conversations after the service. Uh, we're going to have uh, tea and coffee and all of those good things and be able to enjoy sharing in that time together. Before we get into God's word this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust that this word that we hear from today that's written down for us is your word to us. That all of it is God-breathed and useful for growing, being trained in righteousness, for correcting, for coming to know who you are as our God and who we are as your people. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you might plant your word deep within our hearts today. We pray that you'll help us as we come to Passages of the Bible that are from times that are very removed from ours and cultures that are very different to ours. That you'll help us to see the truths that have stayed the same and that you might help us to be able to go and live the truth that we see in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the last two weeks, we've been, uh, well, it was Easter, of course, and before that, we had a, had a week, uh, Palm Sunday, where we looked particularly at uh, the events of that Palm Sunday of Christ entering Jerusalem. But before that, we've been uh, doing a series in a book that I said was one of the, you know, probably the book that helps us to understand what Jesus' death on the cross means more than any others, any other. And that book is the book of Leviticus which is a book that we Christians often have very little idea what to do with. It's full of laws that the New Testament has said don't apply to Gentile believers. It's uh, full of things like animal sacrifices that have nothing to do with what it is, the way that we worship God and the way that we, our sins are forgiven and that we're made right with him. And so we're going to finish off this series. This is uh, the second to last one in our series in Leviticus. Don't cheer too loudly. But um, we're going to be looking at a section. uh, I'll only read one, but it's covering four chapters of Leviticus and particularly dealing with issues that um, how the priests should go about their duties and how they should run the the holy days uh, of the year. So we're going to read from Leviticus chapter 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me, so that they will not profane my holy name. I am Yahweh, the Lord. 
Say to them for the generations to come, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean and yet comes near the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. I am Yahweh, the Lord. If a descendant of Aaron has a defiling skin disease or a bodily discharge, he may not eat the sacred offerings until he is cleansed. He will also be unclean if he touches something defiled by a corpse or by anyone who has an omission of semen. Or if he touches any crawling thing that makes him unclean or any person who makes him unclean, whatever the uncleanness may be. The one who touches any such thing will be unclean till evening. He must not eat any of the sacred offerings unless he's bathed himself with water. When the sun goes down, he will be clean. And after that, he may eat the sacred offerings, for they are his food. He must not eat anything found dead or torn by wild animals, and so become unclean through it. I am Yahweh, the Lord. The priests are to perform my service in such a way that they do not become guilty and die for treating it with contempt. I am Yahweh, the Lord who makes them holy. No one outside a priest's family may eat the sacred offering, nor may the guest of a priest or his hired worker eat it. But if a priest buys a slave with money or his slaves are born in his household, they may eat his food. If a priest's daughter marries anyone other than a priest, she may not eat any of the sacred contributions. But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or is divorced yet has no children and she returns to live in her father's household as in her youth, she may eat her father's food. No unauthorized person, however, may eat it. Anyone who eats a sacred offering by mistake must make restitution for the, uh, to the priest for the offering and add a fifth of the value to it. The priest must not desecrate the sacred offerings that Israelites present to the Lord. By allowing them to eat the sacred offerings and so bring upon them guilt requiring payment, I am Yahweh who makes them holy. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, If any of you, whether an Israelite or a foreigner residing in Israel, presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle or the sheep or the goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a freewill offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. You may, however, present as a freewill offering an ox or a sheep that is deformed or stunted, but it will not be accepted in fulfilment of a vow. You must not offer to the Lord an animal whose testicles are bruised, crushed, torn or cut. You must not do this in your own land and you must not accept such animals from the hand of a foreigner and offer them as the food of your God. They will not be accepted on your behalf because they are deformed and have defects, the Lord said to Moses. When a calf, a lamb or a goat is born, 
it is to remain with its mother for seven days. From the eighth day on, it will be acceptable as a food offering presented to the Lord. Do not slaughter a cow or a sheep and its young on the same day. When you sacrifice a thank offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It must be eaten that same day. Leave none of it till morning. I am Yahweh. Keep my commands and follow them. I am Yahweh. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh. What do we do with that? I think it's fairly obvious that very little of that can be directly applied into our lives today. We don't go to the priests to make sacrifices. We don't have to worry about whether the, the, the uh, sheep that we're offering or the ox that we're offering has festering or running sores or warts or is blind or is lame. We can often struggle to know what to do with passages like this. But there's one key thing, one key phrase that keeps popping up throughout the chapters uh, that we're going through over these, um, over these four chapters. And you would have seen it in that chapter that we read out a couple of times. But particularly clearly it says at the end, do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am Yahweh who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh. The heart of all of this thing, all of these different things is do the people of God have reverence for God? Do they respect that God is holy? And do they treat his things as holy? That's the theme that connects through all of the different things that we'll be looking at this morning. Reverence is the idea of respect and awe for the importance that something holds. As uh, Brian always likes to say, it's the things that take your breath away. Reverence is that, that respect that we have, the, thing, the, the moment of realising that something is important, that something is special. I don't know what comes to mind for people when they think of reverence. Um, perhaps you did a tour of the MCG and as you walked out onto the turf and you looked out at the stands around you, you felt reverence for the important place that you were standing in. I know some people that feel that way about things. Sometimes it's, you step into a great cathedral and it's hard not to be impressed at the majesty of the place and how big and how grand and how well-designed it all is. Or you go to somewhere uh, you know, in nature, somewhere incredible, to Uluru, to the Grand Canyon, to the Victoria Falls, wherever it might be, and you're just struck with the magnitude of the place. We can show reverence to many things, and it's, it's not bad necessarily to do so, 
But our passage today is about do we revere God and the things that belong to him? Do we respect his holiness? Now, as we saw, much of the passage that we've read today, or you know, much of the whole passage, and not just the bit that we read, is directed toward the priests and how they handle the things and how they handle themselves in the tabernacle and later, of course, in the temple. And we see that the priests of Israel were held to a higher standard of holiness than the general community. So you know, as well as adhering to all the rules that the people of Israel were to keep, there were some rules, particularly for the priests, that you have to keep these rules to maintain this higher standard of holiness. So in chapter 21, we see like things like they're not to bury family members of theirs that, that have died. Under the Jewish law, we looked at the rules of being clean and unclean a little while ago, back earlier in Leviticus, and touching a dead body made you unclean. And the priests were not to become unclean if they could help it. And so unless there was nobody else to bury a family member, unless it was a close family member and nobody else could do it, they weren't to do it so that they could remain clean and able to serve their God and serve at the temple. The high priest was not to touch a dead body or to go into, um, even into a house where somebody has died at all because the high priest is, you know, was, as a representative of the whole nation of Israel, had to maintain that holiness so that they could go into the temple uh, or into the holy place and there represent God's people and meet with God on their behalf. And it was very important that the, the people of Israel respected these laws about clean and unclean so that they didn't, uh, the word is defile the temple, so that they didn't defile, didn't make the tabernacle unclean the high priest and the priest were told that they may only marry a virgin uh, which is a higher standard of holiness than of of laws than what was for the general people they were told that no priest with a physical defect was able to serve at the tabernacle and that's something that seems harsh uh, particularly in a day where you know, for good reasons, we, we want to be able to include people uh, you know, in society, in jobs, and, and have not, people not be counted out because of things like physical defects, you know, you know, being in a wheelchair or any of those things. And it, so I said, so it seems harsh that they weren't able to serve, but it was important to God that the, the tabernacle was a picture of his perfection that it was a picture of, you know, the, the tabernacle was full of images of cherubim and things and, and pictures reminding people of the Garden of Eden, of the perfect world that God had made and of the perfection that we know that God is going to make when he makes all things new. And so it was important to him that this was reflected in uh, those who were serving at his temple. And then the chapter that we read was about showing reverence for God's things. There was special food 
uh, you know, the, the meat from the sacrifices and, and some of the bread that was placed in the holy place before, you know, where, where God dwelt. And that food, like one, once it had been presented before God, it was given to the priests to be their food. And all of those laws that we read in that first part of the chapter is about priests don't take that for granted. This is something incredible that you're getting the meat from the sacrifices. You're getting the things that are put here before God and God is giving them to you to be your portion. Don't just go sharing them out for any, with anyone. It's only for the priests and for those who are dependent upon the priests for their food. For their, for their families, particularly like their, their unmarried children, their dependents in that sense. And also in a time where slavery did exist. It spoke about those who were slaves or servants in the priest's household. You know, the priest had to provide their food for them. So their food would come from the priest's food. But they weren't just to share it out with anybody, just the priests and their dependents. Because God is holy and he is the one who makes his people holy. The second thing we saw in that is that people weren't to just sacrifice any old rubbish. Not just to get rid of the, the animals that they were, you know, needed a way to get rid of because they were no good for anything anyway. God was saying, when you come to give me a sacrifice, I want you to take a look at what you've got and give me your best. Give from the best of what you've got to make your sacrifices. Otherwise, if you're just trying to use this as a way to get rid of an animal you don't even want and earn God's favour or, like, or deal with your, your sin offering or uh, fulfil a vow, it's not going to work. God is not going to accept just you know, the scraps and the things that the people don't want. God is holy. And in order to not dishonour his name, to not profane his name, the people of Israel needed to treat him as holy, to respect that he was holy when he came to make his sacrifices, to respect that the, 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 um, the, the, the food that the priests ate, the, the meat from the sacrifices, the bread, that that was holy, that that needed to be treated with respect, not because it was materially any different from any other meat uh, or any other bread, but because it had been given to God and because the people respected God, they were to respect his things. Now, even with all of that sort of explanation of some of the things behind these laws, it still seems a world away from us, doesn't it? It still seems very far removed to our worship of God. And it's not easy to see how this shows us what it means for us to show reverence to God. So very little of it directly applies. We don't go to the priests. We don't make sacrifices. There is no showbread. Uh, there, we don't have to worry about whether we're ritually unclean or not and all of those things that could make you unclean so that you couldn't go into the tabernacle. But as I said, all of these things were done to demonstrate their respect for God's holiness. And if one thing 
we know from this passage has remained true today, it is that God is still holy. And God's holiness still demands our respect and our reverence as people who worship him. But this church is not the temple. And the way that we show reverence for God's things is not necessarily the same way that they showed reverence for the things of the tabernacle. It's not as though, I mean, you know, they had all of these rituals about, you know, only the priest could go inside the holy place and, um, you know, all of, all of these particular hands had to be washed in the right way and all of these things. And we don't have that when we come into church. And I think the New Testament is clear that we don't have to have that when we come into church. But like priests, we are called to take our holiness seriously. The reality is that God's people represent God to the world around them. That was true in the time of Israel and that's true today. And so it was, it was so important to have all of these things so that Israel showed in their behaviour, in their lives, in their worship, in, you know, in the way the priesthood worked, that they revered their God, that they respected that their God was holy and that they wanted to be holy like their God. And likewise, we represent God to the world around us. We are, you know, what people see of God, of Jesus in our world. We are, in many cases, the only encounter that a lot of people have with God and with Jesus. And the question that this passage asks us is that do people see our love for God and our reverence for God in the way that we live and in the things that we do? Does our attitude towards church show people that we respect the holiness of God? Or do we come across as, oh, it's a thing I have to do every Sunday? Does our behaviour bring honour to God's name or profane his name? I mean, this is, this is an idea that Paul picked up when he was... Um, that was not the passage I was looking for. There we go. This is something Paul, uh, Paul spoke about when he was talking to the Corinthians about whether our lives show our reverence for God. He tells them, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Very, very different passage to Leviticus 22. But the idea at the heart of it is the same. The, the people then were to show reverence, show, show their respect for God through the way they treated the temple. Paul says... Now you show your reverence to God by how you treat your own body. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. 
It's a challenging thing to think about that we are the temple in the New, in the New Testament time. Christ came and he became God with us. He was the way that God dwelt among his people. And then he ascended to the Father's right hand and we have the word of scripture that says we have become temples. When the Holy Spirit lives in us, we become the way that God is active in the world, the way that people come to encounter God. So does our behaviour bring honour to God's name? Or does it profane, to use that slightly old-fashioned term from Leviticus, does it profane his name? When people see Christians, does it lead them to thinking well of God or thinking poorly of him? And I was reading a thing just during the week, not, um, not from anywhere locally, but it was a number of um, you know, like waitresses and servers and people who work in the, um, you know, in the hospitality industry. And I, th- I think this was particularly in some Bible Belt parts of America, talking about how much they disliked the Sunday lunchtime slot because of the way that they were often treated by people that came in from church to have lunch with their families. And that is exactly the kind of idea of what it means for Christians with their lives, with their behaviour, to profane God's name. For people to see us and think, whatever it is that they worship, I want no part of it. And so that's a big part of what this passage calls us to reflect on. Do we show reverence for God and for his holiness in the way that we live? Now, it's important to recognise we are all fallen, broken, sinful human beings, forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And we will continue to make mistakes sometimes. And those mistakes will sometimes reflect poorly on the God that we worship. But when people look at our lives, they see, oh, that that was an out-of-character thing. That was a bit of a blip in the life of a person who's normally quite kind and lovely. Or is that the norm of our lives? We see uh, in the next chapter in Leviticus, chapter 23, that the same principle applies to the, the times that God has set for Israel to worship him. And it sets out for the priests, these are all of the special times in Israel. From the Sabbath, every week they were to observe the Sabbath and do no work. And um, in that way to honour God who had, co- had told them to keep the Sabbath. And then there are all the annual festivals, the the festival of Passover and unleavened bread, which went for a week. The festival of first fruits, where they would bring some of the first of their harvest into God to thank him for their harvest. The festival of weeks, also known as Pentecost, which came a certain amount of time after 
that uh, festival of first fruits. The festival of trumpets, which Leviticus doesn't actually say much about, except that trumpets are played at certain times during the day and the people weren't to work. The Day of Atonement, which we spent a whole lot of time on back in Leviticus chapter 16, because like I said, that was in many ways the heart of the book about how the people trusted in God uh, and this, the sacrifice being made on their behalf so that their sins would be forgiven and taken far away in the way that this it was a picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Uh, and last of all, the Festival of Tabernacles, where they would remember their time in the wilderness by going out from their houses and living either in tents or like building temporary shelters and covering them with palm branches and things and living in that for a week. And in chapter 23, it points out these are not optional things. The people of Israel are to worship God by, by observing all of these. Compulsory reminders to stop and reflect on what God had done. But, you know, they weren't also, some of them were sombre, but many of these things were, were very festive, were, were real parties where the community would come together and celebrate the things of God. And yet we don't observe any of those. I mean, yes, I suppose we, we can do the Passover uh, meal when, uh, before Easter. We do that every year. And we probably could, in good conscience, observe some of these festivals if we wanted to. And we have some festivals of our own. We just had one. We have Easter. And like Brian said, it's, it's one of the most important times of the Christian calendar. We observe Christmas and celebrate that Christ was born. But again, the principle, understanding the principle behind this chapter is important. Because when, in chapter 23, as, as Moses is laying out, here are all of the festivals that God has told us to observe. He says, if anyone doesn't observe them, they're to be cut off from their people. Which you might go, well, if we're going to apply that to us, does that mean... Anybody who doesn't come to an Easter service has to be excommunicated. Does it mean if you have to work on Christmas Day that you don't really love God? Well, I don't think so. Uh, I think we get a fairly clear indication of that in Romans 14, chapter 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And each should do as they believe. But it's worth asking, as we think about holy times, as we think about those times that are designed for us to stop and reflect on what God has done, what is our attitude towards them? What's our attitude towards the Sunday gathering every week? Like We have an every week thing just like they had an every week Sabbath. Now, Sunday is not exactly the same as the Sabbath. I did a whole sermon on that, so I won't dive into that today we have like i said christmas and easter and if you're in other traditions there's a whole host of holy days and days of the various saints that you could uh, observe if you wanted to but what's our attitude towards those things is it reverence or is it impatience oh another one another sunday Another Easter. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest, I've been guilty of that. 
being the pastor of the church, inevitably, the busiest times of the year are Christmas and Easter. And sometimes if you allow yourself, a little bit of bar humbug can creep in to the whole thing because you're getting so busy. But the purpose of these days, the reason that we have them, is to stop and reflect on the awesomeness of our God and all that he has done for us. Do we show in our attitude towards church, towards Easter, towards Christmas, that we're excited to reflect on what God has done for us? Do we, do we show in our attitude toward those things that we love God and enjoy celebrating those times together? Do we show reverence for a special time that we have every, well, every other week here at our church? Every other week we come around the Lord's table and we have communion. And sometimes are we, gee, the sermon went on for ages and we've still got communion to go? <sighs> We're all human. Sometimes we think those sort of thoughts. But Paul does warn the Corinthians again. In, in chapter 11, there's a whole spiel about stop and reflect on the importance of this time that we spend together. Show reverence for this time, not because well, we, we don't believe that the bread is literally Jesus' body or the, the, the grape juice is literally his blood. But we show reverence for this time because it's so important that we stop and we reflect on what God has done for us. And it is a time for reverence. And the last thing, just in wrapping up, in finishing off, looking this whole very strange section. Like it's nothing wrong with coming to these sort of passages and thinking, gee, that's hard to know what to do with it. But the whole section wraps up with a very interesting story where one of the Israelite community is holed in. He's the son of an Egyptian father and an Israelite mother. And so in those days, he's considered more, more as an Egyptian. Like lineage is based more on the line from the father. And this Egyptian had gotten into uh, an argument with some Israelite boys and in so doing had chosen to curse God's name, uh, which was probably something more than just, you know, when, when people use God's name in vain today, not that we would encourage people to do that, but was actually saying about, like, directly saying that God is, you know, your God is weaker than our gods or, you know, your God is not the God that we should worship. And there's a question of how should they respond to this person blaspheming God's name? Uh, The rule was pretty clear. Israelites weren't supposed to do it, but he was reckoned as uh, an Egyptian. So what were they to do? So they asked Moses, and Moses asked God. And God said, he has to be executed by stoning. And so the community put him to death. It's not a fun story. Coming where it does, it's kind of some extra punctuation on this whole section about God's holy name. 
that this is an important matter that, people, that God's people respect his holy name. And again, the application from this isn't that we should go out and execute everybody who wrote OMG on one of their uh, Facebook posts. But it does remind us that God is holy and the holiness of his name is a serious business. God calls us to be holy like he is holy. And that's a massive call to live up to. But in finishing, I have some good news. God reminds the Israelites multiple times throughout the passages, uh, the, the chapter that we read today, that it is the Lord who makes us holy. It's not that we have suddenly become good enough that we've become holy in God's sight. And for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, those of us who believe that he is the one that God has promised, that he is the son of God who gave his life in our place, the Bible teaches that our sin was counted onto him who had no sin on the cross, and there it was paid for, so that his righteousness is counted to us. His holiness is counted toward us. We can be holy, not because we're good enough, but because he is holy. And that he should give his life for us makes a reverence towards him the right response, the natural response. That we should want to go out and show the world in our lives that our God is good, that we love our God, that God is holy and that his people might imperfectly but sincerely show the world the goodness of our God. Not profaning his name but proclaiming it. That people will see his, will see Christ in us. So let's pray. God, we don't make sacrifices at the tabernacle. We don't have priests in the same sense as back then. We don't have you know, certain food that has to be set aside for certain people. But we do believe that you were holy then and you are holy now. Your people were called to honour your holiness then, to show in their lives that they truly believe that you are holy. And we believe the same now. Lord, we know that each of us are sinners who have fallen short of your glory. Each of us are not holy in and of ourselves. But we're here because we've trusted the promise of your word that we can be made holy. That our sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus for everyone who believes in him. And Lord, we pray that in our lives, as we go forth, you might help us. Because even having already had our sins forgiven, we still make mistakes. We still fall short. There are still times in our lives where we do things that don't reflect very well on your name. 
But we pray that you would help us grow in love, in faithfulness, in being like Jesus. We pray that in our lives we might show that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price. That in our lives we might show an honour and a respect for you. We pray that when people see our lives, even with the flaws in it, that they might see our love for you. That they might see this Jesus that they worship makes a difference in them. Makes them someone that is good, someone that I can trust, someone that makes me think that maybe this Jesus guy is someone I should look into. And so we just pray that our lives would be that, that they would bring honour to your name and not profane your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A hymn we're going to sing together this morning is all about the whole.